Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you, Brother Ray, and good afternoon, brethren, and welcome to our guests. It's wonderful to see a full house. We may need to make some room. I'm expecting anywhere from 10, maybe 12 people. Uh, to join us at some point through the service. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about, our guests. Let me read the news to you. Since its release in the United States on July 6, Pokemon Go has quickly become a cultural phenomenon. In the first week, the mobile game attracted nearly 21 million users, according to data from SurveyMonkey. As a result, the nature of the game is driving swarms of players to unsuspecting churches, businesses, and other landmarks. But as it grows in popularity, priests, youth groups, and others are quickly finding opportunities to evangelize young people. Do you know what Pokemon Go is? Does anybody not know what it is? It's uh, quite a fascinating game. The article goes on here to say Pokemon Go uses augmented reality a real-world environment that incorporates computer-generated elements such as GPS data, sound, and video. Users move around in the real world as they collect tiny virtual creatures called Pokemon, short for pocket monsters. The mobile app is based on the popular franchise that began with several Nintendo games in the 1990s. Churches, businesses, and other landmarks have been designated as Pokestops, where users collect resources needed to catch Pokemon and gyms where competitions are held among the the, the creatures. So various churches are finding that youth just suddenly appear on their doorstep, and what they're doing is on their phone, they're searching for these Pokemon, and they're in designated Pokestops. And this is from a a company, a technology, I think it's called uh, Niantic, that developed this technology for tourism, that it would highlight tourist spots and people on their phone could find these spots. Uh, And if you went to a place and said, people ought to see this, you would designate it as a stop. Well, Nintendo got a hold of this technology and has been incredibly successful in creating this new digital game that merges reality with digital gaming. It also, though, as fun as it is, it has its dangers. And uh, Jennifer and I were work- walking along the uh, lakeshore this week, and we saw, we didn't know what was going on. We just saw all of these youth looking down at their phones and walking around, and uh, w- a couple of them on bicycles. While they're cycling, they're looking down, and, and we would thought they're going to end up in the lake. Well, this one here, this article says, not everyone is following Pokemon Go's advice to be alert at all times and stay aware of your surroundings. A driver in Baltimore exhibited some poor decision-making skills by driving and playing Pokemon Go at the same time. He ended up crashing into a parked police car. (laughs) And the whole thing is on video. You can actually see it on the internet because the officer was outside of his car and had his body cam on and so he filled the whole whole thing and you see the young man get up and and basically curse the game, that he's sorry that he was playing the game. So there is that danger 
of just being so caught up in your phone that you're not aware of your surroundings and people are banging into poles and banging into each other and sometimes banging into police cars. But I think there's another danger as well that we should be aware of, especially our, our youth. And here in this article, taken from Charisma News, it says, at this point, this is uh, Michael Snyder, at this point, it has almost as many daily active users as Twitter does. So it's just phenomenal. It's just taken off. And Nintendo's stock price is going crazy as a result. On Monday, the stock price shot up, shot up 25%. And on Tuesday, it surged another 13%. In other words, Ninto, Nintendo is now worth billions of dollars more than it was. So just in a couple of days, Nintendo's stock and market cap has gone up billions of dollars. But is there a dark side to Pokemon Go? Is it potentially evil, dangerous, or demonic? Many people would dismiss such questions as complete nonsense. Unlike most video games, Pokemon Go actually requires people to leave their homes, get some exercise, and visit real places. This type of game is being called augmented reality. And it is bringing people together in new and interesting ways. In fact, the Washington Post is reporting that a lot of people are actually ending up in church as they hunt Pokemon creatures. But not everything is unicorns and lollipops with this new game. Over the past week, we have seen people commit robberies at Pokemon Go locations, and there are serious data privacy concerns. People are not realizing that they're sometimes giving permission for their location and other data uh, to the uh, manufacturer. But he goes on here to say, but much more alarming to many is the content of the game itself. As Mina Lee Grebin has pointed out, Pokemon actually comes from two Japanese words meaning pocket monster. Meaning of the word Pokemon, a contraction of two Japanese words, poketo and monsut, meaning pocket monster. Definition of monster, a creature that is typically large, ugly, and frightening. Synonyms for monster, rascal, beast, demon, brute, imp, devil. So pocket demon, pocket devil. Even the Washington Post admits that there are creatures such as a flaming de demon in Pokemon Go. As players progress through the game, they collect these monsters and demons, train them, and have them fight against Pokemon owned by others. The Pokemon are supposed to be monsters that have special powers and share the world with humans. The idea of the game is to have children learn how to collect as many Pokemon as possible, train them, and use them against other people's Pokemon by invoking the various abilities of each Pokemon creature. Pokemon can evolve and pass through various levels, 100 being the highest. Colored energy cards are sometimes used to aid the Pokemon. But is it just a game? Maybe, maybe not. Everything that we do, whether it's a game or not, trains us or conditions us in various ways. Often seeing something in a movie or coming across something in a video game can spark an interest or open a door into something deeper. 
For instance, occult organizations admit that one of their best recruiting tools is Harry Potter. And I think all of us remember the Harry Potter craze. It started out very innocently. But as the children got older, the series got darker. So that there was this convergence between this innocent occult and innocent children. And, oh, the children are just reading. And then as the children were getting older, the occult stories were getting darker and darker. And the parents had no idea what was going on. Oh, look, my kid loves reading. And something similar here could be afoot with Pokemon Go. He goes on to talk about some occult. He says, like many video games, Pokemon is riddled with occult concepts, concepts like magical stones, teleportation, ghosts, the all-seeing eye, psychic power, and using spirits to achieve results in the real world. So all of this is embedded in Pokemon Go. As I look at it, and I haven't, you know, I, I don't want to be uh, categorical, but as I look at it, I see Pokemon Go as digital voodoo. I've done quite a bit of study of voodoo. And in voodoo, there's a very clear understanding that the spirit world lives alongside the human world. And people gather together and they use lures. In this case, they would use drums. There's a certain way of drumming and the cowbell. There's a certain way that you ring the cowbell. And this kind of music attracts the spirit world. So in voodoo, they gather together and they use lures to attract the spirit world, which they know lives alongside the human world. There's an understanding that the different spirits have different powers. Eventually, someone catches a spirit, and over time, these spirits become familiar and can be trained and use their powers to serve humans. That's voodoo. Let's consider Pokemon Go as digital voodoo. There's a clear understanding that pocket monsters live alongside the human world. So right here, right now in this room, there could be a pocket monster. We just need our phone to find out where it is. But there's this understanding that pocket monsters are among us. They gather together, so we would gather together, and we can use lures to attract Pokemons. So we can attract these pocket monsters to a particular location using lures. There's an understanding that there are different pocket monsters, and they all have different powers. Eventually, someone catches a pocket monster, and then these pocket monsters become familiar to that owner, and they can be trained to use their powers to serve humans. Seems to me like there's an analogy here, that conceptually, whoever is designing this game is leaning on the occult in the game design. But Pokemon Go is not the subject of my sermon. What I am focused on is just the phenomenon of acceptance. How quickly it has spread globally and been adopted by tens of millions of people. This is what I'm interested in. Everyone's doing it. So, so, so the logic goes like this. Everyone's doing it. What is this thing? Everybody's doing it. Therefore, it must be good. I'm going to do it because I don't want to be left out. 
And then if it's criticized, I justify it and say, well, you know what? It gets me out, gets me walking, meeting people, talking people. So I just do what the world does, and then I justify my actions. And I think this process, in, in sort of one week, seven days, if we look at the phenomenon of Pokemon Go, we sort of have a little laboratory experiment that shows us our whole lives. This is our whole lives. We happen to be here in Canada. If we were born in Russia or Africa or Europe or the Middle East or New Zealand, wherever we're born, everybody does something. And we just see everybody doing this thing. We don't want to be left out, so we do it too. And then if we're questioned, we justify it. This is the human experience. We get to see it in a sort of encapsulated format in seven days. But it covers our whole existence. Embedded deep within all of us is this desire to fit in. We all want to be a part of everything. We want to fit in. And for this reason, we compromise. We do what we can to be accepted. Look at Luke chapter 6. So Pokemon Go, it'll, it'll come and go. You know, it'll be gone soon. But, but I think just the psychology behind it is what we're interested in. In fact, what they're saying, what's going to spoil it, is business, big business. Big business is now investing in this, and they want to set up lures, of course, by their retail outlets. So to attract all the youth to their retail outlets. And when it gets heavily commercialized like this, the youth will abandon it. So... I think uh, Nintendo needs to make hay while they can. But eventually we'll get tired of it, and then something else will come out. But at least we've begun to train the youth now to combine the digital world with the real world and to redefine reality. So they're going to see the real world now through whatever we push to their phones. And 10 years from now, how will we be manipulating youth? You know, when I was a kid, I'll tell you there's no way... I could have afforded to have a cell phone, much less a data plan with the cell phone. So our games were like, okay, what can we play with no money? Oh, I know, hide and seek. Right? I see you. <laughs> that was our game. You know, now we've got rich kids with everything. And I worry about how this augmented reality, how we're training children to be manipulated and to accept our definition of reality and to think what's what we say is important. This Pokemon has 100 points. It's more important than that one that only has 40 points. So we're going to prioritize for you how to see reality. And this is low-grade technology today. In 10 years, we'll have powerful technology. And we've already accepted, hey, it's just a game. Luke 6 and verse 26. This is speaking of the covenant community. These are people who know God, who know God's ways. And Christ warns them and says, Woe, woe. This is not a small word. This is a big word from Christ. Woe unto you, religious leaders, religious people, people in the covenant community, when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. 
So this is not something that's unique to human beings that are not in the covenant community. In the covenant community, we seek men's approval. We like when people like us. We like when all men like us. And so we will change our words, we'll change our behavior in order to be acceptable. And what Christ is showing us here is that following God is unacceptable to this world. And Murray actually touched on it in his, in his Bible study. That, that there are ways that we can behave that all men are going to speak well of us. Well, following God is not always easy. So Pastor Murray, his message, as he said about James, and I appreciate the context for the book. I understand the book much more uh, deeply now. Uh, but he was saying that James is taking us back to basics. And that's actually what I want to talk about today. Let's go back to basics. And one of the fundamentals of Christianity is repentance. And we had a lot of joy last week in Ottawa as we baptized two new members, uh, one young lady who grew up in the church and another young lady, a middle-aged woman, who had nothing to do with the church, came in six months ago and has been heads down, on fire, studying, and, and has come to repentance. And just a great joy for us and obviously for God in heaven with the angels and with Christ. I want to talk today, brethren, about repentance. What is it? Why is it important? And just as we had two members, one young who grew up in the church and one older who came into the church from the world, I'd like to look at it from these two angles. For our youth, and we have a, a member here who grew up as a young person understanding these things and then came to repentance and baptism. But certainly those of us who are parents or grandparents, and we have children coming up in the church, what should our view be of repentance for them? Obviously, it's not the same. If someone grows up in the church and they're not fornicating, they're not stealing, they're not burning down houses, they're, leave, they're leading decent lives. What does repentance mean to them? And then for us who are in the church already and perhaps are baptized and have been in this walk for a while, what does repentance mean to us? Is it a one and done or is it a lifelong journey? Look at Genesis chapter 12. As we deal with the basics and the fundamentals, let's go to the foundation. And the foundation of our faith is Abraham. And in Genesis 12, and verse 1, we see something here that is really fundamental, foundational to our walk with God. And it begins with Abraham, known here as Abram. Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get you out of your country, and from your kindred, and from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you. And I think this encapsulates our walk with God. It doesn't matter what our country is. It doesn't matter what our family is. When we come into the church, we're being called from the world into God's church. And God's church is a counterculture to the world. We have to be willing to stick out. Okay? So, so Abraham's family, Abraham's culture, they all were pagans. They were all idolaters. They had their culture. They had their customs. And God said to Abraham, leave. 
get out of there. And, and he established in Abram, in Abraham, a counterculture, something completely different to the whole world around him. And that's what we need to be today. He says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. In the same way, we are small today. We're going to be worldwide. Our religion will be the dominant religion. Our customs will be the dominant customs all over the world. We will become a great nation in Abraham. Today, we're the minority. Today, we're weird. You, you, you go to church on Saturday? You, you keep the annual holy days? You're Jewish? We're strange today. In the future, we will not, every man will know the Lord. We'll not say to one, uh, know the Lord, because all men will know God. So he is going to fulfill this spiritually, where Abraham's religion will be the worldwide religion. He says here in verse 3, And I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. So he's coming out of his family. He's coming out of his culture. But this new culture, this new nation, these new customs will be worldwide. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, speaking to the Christian community at Ephesus and to us by extension, Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, And you, Christians, those who have repented and been baptized and received the Holy Spirit, you, has he quickened? In other words, he's made alive. We, we who are baptized are alive in Christ. And this is something that God has done. He's made us alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. So we were all dead in trespasses and sins. But he made us alive. Now this process of going from death to life, spiritual death to spiritual life, it requires knowledge of trespasses and sins. We were deep in trespasses and sins, even though we may not have known. That doesn't change the reality. And so, kind of my, one point I want to make here is, a legitimate baptism requires a legitimate teacher. If I have no clue what sin is, and I baptize you, then I'm baptizing you without giving you any knowledge of what trespasses and sins are. So this is an invalid baptism. In order to repent, you need to know what you're repenting of. And that requires knowledge of trespasses and sins, which we were all dead in, but he made us alive once we recognized that and repented, and by his grace we've been made alive. Wherein in time past, again, this is in our past, you walked without knowing it, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And, and just by anal- analogy, I, I want to call attention again to Pokemon Go. Not, not to zero in on that, but just again, this, in seven days, this world, this global phenomenon, where everybody is engaged in the same behavior, and it's like, you're kind of, are, are these people on remote control? Well, kind of, yes. 
They've got the control in their hands, and it's telling them, go here, go here. You might bang into something, but keep going, keep going, keep, keep going. There's some kind of remote control going on. And, and we can kind of see this where people are walking according to the course of this world. Everybody can agree around the world by the tens of millions within hours that this is a great idea. How is it? How is it that I can preach the gospel as loud as I can and say, follow me? And when I turn around, I'm the only one walking. Everyone's going that way. I'm going this way. Nobody wants to follow. But if I say, hey, Pokemon this way, everybody's with me. How does this work? Clearly, there's something behind this. That there's a, there's a course of this world. And that's why Christ says, woe unto you. Woe unto you if all men speak well of you, because it means you're going on this course. Everyone can agree. If we're on this course, thumbs up. You go against this course, thumbs down. So there is a course. There is something. There is a spirit that's governing this world. And when we see massive agreement, it's not coming from God. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Again, Pokemon Go, I see fathers with their children, children together. It's all very innocent on the surface. Nobody is saying, let's play this so we can be evil. Right? People are saying, let's get out. I'm walking. I met, I met a man yesterday. He says he gets to walk his dog. Other people say they get to meet people. We saw a kind of a party, uh, all of these youth coming together. It's all good. But Satan is not going to come and say, this is bad fruit. Eat it. He's going to say, this is good. Look at all the reasons why it's good. And then we're going to consume it. He's a deceiver. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, again, go to all these people that agree by the tens of millions within hours that this is a good idea. And tell them about Jesus Christ. And let me know how you do. I don't think you're going to be very successful. So there's a spirit inside us that tends to disobedience. We love things that have nothing to do with God. We're happy to be distracted from God. But tell us about God. We don't want that. So, so there is something in us. And again, Pastor Murray talked about friendship with the world, as James told us, is enmity with God. So there is a spirit in the world, and it's enmity with God. Here in verse 3, he says, Among whom? So these children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conduct in times past. And again, Pokemon Go is just an example. Let's not get caught up with it. But just this example that the whole world can go in a direction, and we would go too. Now we have a conscience. Now we have direction. And the whole world can go one way, and we don't care. Because we're, we know where we're going. And we're no longer caught up with the spirit of the world among whom also we all had our conduct. We all did this. There's a spirit in the world that we were all a part of. We were dead in times past, in the lusts of our flesh. This makes me feel good. Therefore, it must be good. If it made me feel bad, it must be bad. But it makes me feel good. I get to be with my friends. I get to do what it, it's all good for me. Therefore, it's good. That was our logic. And that's how Satan, how he deceived Eve, and it's how he works today. He hasn't changed. We're not ignorant of his devices. He appeals to self-interest. Christ does not appeal to self-interest. Christ appeals to truth. 
And either we have a spirit that wants truth or we have a spirit of disobedience. And sometimes truth is inconvenient. Sometimes truth doesn't feel good. Sometimes truth can get you persecuted, as Pastor Murray was saying again. But it's truth. We can't help but preach the gospel because it's true. And we're not here for what feels good to the flesh. So we were manipulated because we all had our conduct in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And when you see all of these youth in these gaggles of girls and flocks and swarms, it feels good to be a part of something. I can remember as a, as a young man, um, grade 11, we all went to the shop together, my, my friends and I, probably about a dozen of us, and we all bought the exact same running shoes. And I'm telling you, I was, it was like walking on sunshine. Just to be part, we walked through the, the high school, and it was like this statement that we are the cool guys, and we all had the same shoes. And it's just the lust of the mind, the lust of the flesh. That's what he's talking about here. Seems innocent, but it's the spirit that is not innocent. The spirit behind it is anti-God. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. There are these carnal desires in us which cause us to be dead in Christ. And we're by nature, notice this, brethren, We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. It was in our nature. And this really brings us to the first, the key understanding of repentance, especially for our young people. Our young people may not have done all kinds. They didn't kill anybody. You know, they haven't robbed a bank. They're They're not fornicating. What's there to repent of? You know, I used to do this, I don't do that anymore. What's there to repent of? The scripture says we were by nature the children of wrath. That this desire to just fit into the world and then justify my actions, it, it, I have reasons why I do this. Ah, I'm seeing the nature of the children of disobedience. And when we have this nature, that nature Satan is going to manipulate us into resisting Christ. I'm going to defend Pokemon Go with all my heart, but I don't care about Christ. That's a nature. That's a nature. And this is what our youth need to learn, that as a human being, I am by nature self-centered. Again, Pastor Murray covered that in the Bible study. That's that even, even with the Holy Spirit, I'm still, I still have this nature. And it causes me now in the church to still have wars. Where, where do wars come from among, among you? You believers. Where does this fighting come from? From our nature. From our fallen nature. So our parents, we need to help our children understand their nature. I shouldn't say their nature. Our nature as human beings. And again, the children of wrath don't understand this. They have no idea. There there are people out there that do really good things, that sacrifice for worthy causes. Try and convince them that they have a selfish nature. They don't see it. But try and show them the law of God and ask them to do the law of God. They can't do it because of the selfish nature. 
So repentance requires not just recognizing the wrong we've done. It needs to, it requires recognizing the wrong we are. I am by nature selfish and self-centered. Of course the whole world revolves around me. Of course nothing happened in the world until I was born. And then when I die, who cares? Because it's all about me, right? It sounds ridiculous, but it's how we're wired. It's our nature. We were, and because of this nature, we were the children of wrath, even as others. But, there's good news. God, who is rich in mercy, so even though we are his enemies, even though we don't care about him, even though we will defend fantasy before we defend God, God, who is rich in nature, rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. So this is God is love, and he has this great love that even though we are hostile to him, he loves us with this great love even when we were dead in sins. So we were dead, but he's quickened us. So even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. So this is just God, God proactively acting in our lives. There we are lost, wrapped up in, our, in ourselves, and God relieves us from this miserable condition and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, so remember, he, he pulled Abraham out of his country, out from his customs, and said, I will make of you a great nation. He pulls us out of the country of the dead, we were among the dead. He, he pulled us out of that, out of his great love, and made us alive, so that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Stay with the program. Yet, we're the weirdos now. We're the minority now. But he's going to show in us to the whole world the riches of his exceeding grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. So it's got nothing to do with us. It's not that we're good people. And God kind of did a survey of the land and said, let's pick out the best people. Oh, look, she's trying to be good. I'll call her. Nothing to do with that. It's just his grace and the exceeding love that he loves us with. And he chooses us to be not best fruits, but first fruits. We're here first. We're being trained so that in his mercy and loving kindness, we can then train and extend his mercy to others. God is love. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not of ourselves. And this is another thing we need our youth to understand. That there's no goodness in us. It's not like, you know, I've been really good this last six months. I'm, I'm ready to be baptized. It's got nothing to do with us. It's, it's his goodness. That there's this recognition that God's hand is on me. He's working in my life. I, I can see it now. And I want to have a relationship with him. And I want to be used by him. And so this is the grace. That by grace you are saved through faith. Not through works. There's nothing that we, we don't earn this. We just believe it. It's through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And again, 
uh, Pastor Murray's study, he talked about this with James, that the faith is an active faith. It's not just talk. That we believe, therefore we do. What we believe impacts what we do. So works go with the faith, but works don't earn us salvation. What, what salvation comes as a gift, and we believe in Christ. We believe in God's grace. And that's, that's the gift of salvation. As a result of our beha- belief, we behave differently. We don't want to be the enemies of God anymore. We're, we're tired of breaking his law. We're tired of being selfish, self-centered, small people. We want to be on Christ's side and serve him and be what he created us to be. And he says here in verse 9, So it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So there's nothing that I can point to and say, well, look at my works. This, this, you know, God had to bring me into the kingdom. Why, Adrian? Well, look at the works. I mean, have you ever seen works like this? God doesn't want this. He calls the weak and the base and, and those of us who are dead in our trespasses. And it's just through his grace. It's through his blessing. So there's this acknowledgement that has got nothing. If we can boast, it reverses the whole process. We're back where we started, being self-centered and, and in, in, in engaged in self-aggrandizement. Now notice now, although it's not of works, it's through faith in Christ, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So salvation is not of works, it's of faith. But once we receive this gift, we are animated by the Holy Spirit to do good works, to keep God's law. In fact, we cannot keep God's law without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to keep God's law, which God has ordained, has before ordained, that we should walk in them. We should, it's, it's, it's foreordained that we should walk in good works. There are good works that we must be engaged in. So it's not that, oh, I believe in Christ, I've got nothing to do. It doesn't matter what I do. I can, I can commit adultery, I can steal, I can murder. Christ has covered it all. That's not what the scripture says. It's because we receive the Holy Spirit that we're now able to keep God's law. So, youth, parents, we cannot boast in ourselves. We boast in Christ. And there needs to be this acknowledgement that there's a problem. There's a problem with being human. I think there was a movie called The Problem with Mary or something like that. Well, something like that. But The Problem with Jane, maybe it was. I don't know. The Problem with Joan. The Problem with... Put your name there. (laughs) Put my name there. The problem with being human is we have this nature that is selfish and is anti-God. And we need the Holy Spirit to transform us from being selfish to becoming self-sacrificing, from being self-centered to becoming Christ-centered. Luke 13. Deacon Jan mentioned in his prayer 
just what's going on in the world. How dangerous a world it is. I've never seen anything like this. I mean, when I was a youth, I didn't even follow the news. I just played. And occasionally something happened that everybody knew this happened in the world. But now these sort of tragic events, every single week, something tragic is happening. And we can believe, as Pastor Murray was talking about it in the study again about the persecution, that we're God's people, he must protect us. Look what Christ says in Luke 13, beginning in verse 1, where a catastrophe had happened. There were present at that season some that told him, Christ, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate just had his way with these Galileans and took their blood and mingled it with the pagan sacrifices. And they told him about this. So it seems like in their thinking, there must have been something wrong with these people to suffer such an awful fate. In verse 2, Christ says, And Jesus answering said unto them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? So in your calculus, do you equate the tragedy with some sort of degree of sinfulness? I tell you no. Let me disabuse you of that notion. Get rid of that thinking. Except you repent. We're all by nature children of wrath. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. This is what Christ is telling them. That was terrible. It's coming to you. Unless you repent, you will perish. And I think this, again, is something that we need to understand that there is, and and Deacon Jan talked about it, eternal life. There's this life that we're living now, this temporary existence, and it's great. We get to enjoy one another, to experience one another. It feels wonderful to be alive. But there's an expiry date on my forehead, and there's one on yours too. And then we perish. How we perish, who knows, but we perish. And unless we repent, we do not have eternal life. That there are people who are going to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And and 10,000 forevers from now, they're still living forever and ever and ever. And they will never cease to exist. But it requires repentance to be in that category. As long as we don't repent of any sin, as long as Christ is not the Lord of our lives, we will perish. There is no usefulness for anyone who is self-centered. There's there's just no usefulness. So for us to become eternally useful, we must repent. We must become Christ-centered, not self-centered. So do you think that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans? Because they suffered such things? No, I tell you, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Christ is kind of, I think here, reading between the lines, saying, this is not my world. There's someone who's running this world, which is brutal. He's vicious. And he will have his way with you. He's going to destroy all life on the planet if he can. 
So unless you come over to Christ, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. You will all likewise perish. Or those 18, remember the 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and it slew them? Do you think they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And I think these words should jump off the page to us today. Where I can say, do you think those homosexuals in Orlando suffered like that because of their sinfulness? That they were somehow greater sinners than the rest of us? I tell you, no. Except we repent, we shall all likewise perish. You could be shopping like yesterday in in Munich at the shopping mall. One moment to the next. One minute you're saying, oh, look, that's on sale. The next you're running for your life, and maybe you get a bullet in your head. God forbid. But it could happen anywhere. So unless we repent, this transition from this temporary existence into an existence where we live forever, we're not going to make the, the transition. We stay in this mode, and that's it. We perish. We cease to exist. So, so repentance is the door to eternal life. We have to come through Christ. We have to give up our reign over our lives and allow Christ to reign over us. And this is the problem. This is, this is, this is the point. This is what's at issue. Pokemon is fine. Because Pokemon doesn't tell me what to do directly, just indirectly. Christ is a problem because he wants to rule me. And there's a part of me that just doesn't want to be ruled. That's the problem. And we need to get to this point where it's great to submit to Christ. Christ is wonderful. Christ's love is unimaginable. And if we only do what he asks us, we're blessed, he's blessed, everyone we interact with is blessed, and this blessing is eternal and worldwide. Why wouldn't you accept such an offer? And if you don't accept it, you perish with your Pokemon Go. Acts 2. And while you're, while you're going there, I'll just remind you, when Christ began his ministry, he, it began with the word repent. As soon as he had conquered Satan, he began his ministry, and he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's this fundamental requirement, this pivot that's required to repent. And in Acts 17 and verse 30, Luke writes, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. This is a requirement. Acts 2, verse 34, begins, uh, Peter, in his sermon, says, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit you at my right hand, until I make your foes your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And this is the state 
that we all need to get to, where we recognize that Christ has come into the earth, the creator has come into his creation to sacrifice himself for his creation. And then we come to realize we crucified him. It is because of us that he has done this. It is because of us that he has suffered. And once we recognize that, even our youth, once our youth recognize this, our reaction should be, what shall we do? How do we make this right? How is it that my creator came into creation for me and was brutalized and was humiliated and was tortured and was murdered for me? And not just for me. I did it. I caused it. What shall we do? And this is the response that God wants. This is the response of of awe and gratitude that God wants from us. Then Peter said unto them, repent. This is what you should do. Here's the answer. Repent. So repentance means we need to come to understand what are the transgressions of God's law. What does it mean to repent? What is God's law? What are his requirements? What am I doing wrong? And I need to stop doing that. Repent, and then once you've repented, then be baptized. So first is repent. It's not just be baptized. You have to repent first. Repent, then be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 5, he says, he gives the Holy Spirit to them who obey him. So you, you, you can't be obeying him if you have no idea what transgression is and what the law says. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, as many as the Lord our, call, our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And, and we live today in an untoward generation. This is crazy. I think I was speaking to Sister Marilyn, and we were just, she was just saying that it, there just seems to be a spirit of insanity in the world. And you really see it. It's global. The world has gone insane. And we need to repent and save ourselves from this untoward generation. In chapter 3 of Acts, verse 19, He says in verse 19, Repent you therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So there is this conversion process. And that word conversion in, uh, in the Greek means to, to convert, to turn. We have to turn. We have to change. So I, I used to be this way. I'm not that way anymore. I've changed. Or I shouldn't say I've changed. God has changed me. There, there's a conversion process. I, I don't know if you're familiar with St. Augustine's Confessions. And he does, uh, uh, I mean, I certainly don't promote St. Augustine. Um, but he is sort of the uh, big thinker, in, one of the big thinkers in the traditional Christian world. But he did write this in his Confessions, which I think is very relevant. He says, he was speaking of these pears and apples that he stole with a, a group of teens. 
And he said, I wanted to commit my theft. I wanted to commit my theft. And I did it compelled neither by want nor poverty. I wasn't hungry and I wasn't poor, but I really wanted to steal. But I did it instead by a distaste of justice and a feast of iniquity. I desired that in which I abounded. I, I had enough, but I still wanted someone else's. Reminds you of uh, King David. He had all the women he wanted, but he wanted somebody else's. Nor did I wish to profit in this affair in which I was striving with theft, but only in the very theft and sin. There was a pear tree near our vineyard, weighed down with fruit, alluring neither in appearance nor in flavor. So he saw this pear tree. It was weighed down with fruit, and the fruit looked ugly, probably had pock marks in it and stuff. And, and when they tasted it, it wasn't particularly sweet. To shake this tree and make off with its produce, we no good youths made haste in the dark night when we had carried on our game in the streets according to our pestilential custom. And we carried off from there enormous loads of fruit, not to our meals, so they, they stole tons of fruit in the night, not to eat, but rather to cast before swine. So they didn't want it. They just wanted to steal it. If we ate some, even if we ate some, nevertheless it occurred that it was pleasing to us to do that which was not allowed. It was the fact that they were doing something wrong. That's where they had pleasure. And then he goes on to confess the, the, um, the nature of his being. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8. I remember as a, as a youth coming home from school, oh, sorry, going to school with my friends, and I had, we had slingshots. I think there were about five of us, and I bought us all slingshots. And um, we were walking past these houses, and one of the houses had a wreath on the door, like a circle on the door. And so we took our slingshots to try to aim at the, in the middle of the circle. And one of us got a bullseye, and I swore it was me. So I started to brag about how that was my shot, and we started to argue over who actually hit the door in the middle of the circle. Then the owner of the house opened the door and wanted to know who did that, and we all pointed at each other okay, and all argued that it was the other, the other guy. And I think this is, this is just this human nature, even in youth. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So the Holy Spirit enables us to fulfill the righteousness of the law, which cannot be done carnally. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. So again, this phenomenon with Pokemon Go, everybody thinks is a great idea, but try and tell them about Christ, not interested. There's something in the human psyche. That things of the flesh get our attention. But they that are after the spirit mind the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. So all of these people, tens of millions of them, that can be turned. Can, they can change their behavior overnight. But only if it satisfies them carnally. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritual minded is life and peace. 
Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. There is something in us. It's, it's bizarre. We hate our creator. You know, Jesus Christ came to this earth, and he only did good. He healed people. He cast demons out of people. He taught people. He blessed people in every way. And we killed him. We didn't want that. We hated him. It's bizarre. There's something in us which has a direct line to the adversary. We, we, we were the children of the devil. There's no such thing as a neutral human being. We're either children of the adversary or we're children of God. And that's it. So there's something here. The carnal mind is enmity. It's hostile against God. So without the Holy Spirit, we have a mind that is hostile against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So, they that, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Those of us who are in the Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit. What does repentance mean to us? Let's just quickly review that. And in fact, Pastor Murray covered this in the Bible study as well. Matthew 18. That even though we have the Holy Spirit, this carnal nature is so much a part of our DNA that even with the Holy Spirit, it still surfaces. Even with the Holy Spirit, we still have these episodes of selfishness to the point where James asks, where do these wars and fighting come from among you? And, and why are you judging one another? Why are you so harsh with one another, even though we have the Holy Spirit? I think in terms of this, what does repentance mean to us? Look at Matthew 18. We've covered this before. Let's just go through it again. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then came Peter to him, to Christ, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? So there's a problem in the church where brother, because of selfishness, will sin against brother. There's no, I wish I could say that guaranteed. Now that you're in the church, you're among people that will never sin against you. I can't say that. I can't even say that I won't sin against you. This is the fallen nature. Even with the Holy Spirit, brother will still sin against brother. But what do we do when that happens? Jesus said to him, I say not unto you until seven times, but until 70 times seven. So, so there's a requirement now that we have that when we are hurt, when we are damaged, when we are abused by somebody in the church, there's a requirement on us to forgive. Over and over and over again. That's hard. That's hard. One of the hardest things for, the human, for a human being is to be told, you don't matter. You are insignificant. It's the hardest thing. 
it, it's, it's sort of that anxiety in the back of all of our minds. It's, you know, some of these great men that achieve great things, what's driving them is this fear that they don't matter. And the way to really hurt somebody is to tell them they don't matter. And the way to get retaliation is show someone they don't matter. And they'll show you that they do. And so within the church, when we sin against the brother or sister, what we're saying is you don't matter. My selfish lust is what matters. What satisfies me is what matters. You, you don't matter. And that's going to get retaliation. And Christ says don't retaliate. The brother, the brother who's sinning against you, he matters to me. And if you see things the way I do, he'll matter to you. So they came and they crucified Christ, saying to Christ, you don't matter. And Christ said nothing. He was obedient unto death. And that's how we have to be. Verse 23. Therefore, and listen to this, brethren. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king. So if we want to understand the kingdom of heaven, it's like this king. That's what the kingdom of God is like. So, so we're all striving to get into God's kingdom. This is what it's like. Here's what the kingdom of God is like. Which would take account of his servants. So there's a king that has servants. And he's taking an account of his servants. And when he began this accounting process, so what does each servant, how are they, I'm evaluating my servants. And so he began to reckon. One was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. So it's like he was kind of getting away with this for a while. And then the king decided to do this evaluation and realized, oh, you owe me 10,000 talents, which is an enormous amount. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold. And not just him, but his wife and children and everything that he had and payment to be made. So you owe this money. That's it. So you're going to be sold. Your wife is going to be sold. Your children are going to be sold. Everything you own is going to be sold so that I can be paid. The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He repented. You and I have repented. You and I have recognized how much we owe this king. And we realize we can't pay it. And so we have repented. And I'll, I'll, I'll pay you everything. The Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. When, when he saw how much this man didn't want to be separated from his wife, didn't want to be separated from his children, didn't want the rug pulled from under him, his whole life building up his his, uh, his wealth. When, when the Lord just saw how much this mattered to this man, he was moved with compassion and he loosed him and forgave him the debt. You know what? It's all right. You're good. You don't even have to pay me. The, the, the compassion that he had for this servant. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence, not 10,000 talents, a hundred pence, nothing. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, 
pay me what you owe. Christ is saying to Peter, don't forgive seven times. You better forgive 70 times seven. Because if you have any idea what you owe, what they owe you is nothing compared to what we owe God. So here we are, we've repented. God has forgiven us. He's had compassion on us. How do we perceive and treat each other? So there's a mistake made. Somebody shows me in some way that I don't matter. And I'm coming back to exact justice and say, oh, yeah, buddy, I matter. My feelings matter. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So no compassion at all for nothing. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, so the fellow Christians see this and think, this is terrible. They were sorry. And they came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, you wicked Christian. Not you wicked person in the world who knows nothing about me. You, one of my servants. And how you treated another one of my servants. You wicked Christian. This is what the kingdom of God is like. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you desired it of me. Shouldn't you also have compassion, have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? You owed me 10,000 talents. He owed you 100 pence. If you multiply 70 times 7 times 100 pence, it's nowhere near 10,000 talents. I had compassion on you. Shouldn't you also have had compassion on your fellow Christian, even as I had pity on you? And his Lord, Christ the King, was angry. We can anger Christ. How we treat each other. What James was warning about. And his Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors. Now I tell you, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise, you shall all likewise perish. So likewise, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Hence, brethren, this focus we have on agape, on learning how to love one another, because we understand how much Christ and God have forgiven us. And whatever we do to each other, it's nothing compared to what we've done to Christ. The debt that we owe is the murder, the torture, the despising, the humiliation of our Creator. What do you owe me compared to what I owe God? It's nothing. It's nothing. Let's begin to wrap up, brethren. Revelation 21.
Revelation 21 and verse 7, it says, He that overcomes, this is the repentance process. We, we, we can't be, it's, it's, it, we're not fine. I, I'm okay, you're okay. No, that's not true. I'm not okay, and you're not okay. And together we're not okay. But in Christ, we can be okay. But that's going to take effort. That's going to take some, some, some energy. That's going to take some focus, some discipline. So he that overcomes shall inherit all things. And, and part of that overcoming, brethren, is overcoming our need to be important, our need to fit in, our, our need that if we're humiliated, we exact justice from one another, not realizing what we owe God. We've got to overcome this nature. So it's not just that we repent of the nature. We've got to overcome it. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. No, I tell you, unless you repent, we shall all likewise perish. There's a temporary life and there's an eternal life. And to participate in the eternal life, we must repent. We cannot have any of these attributes. We must repent of them, which is the second death. And in Revelation 22, in verse 13, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It's all about Christ. You know, I thought it was all about me. You know, when I was growing up, my mom, my mom told me what a wonderful person I was. And I believed it. So I thought it was all about me. Now I'm reading the scriptures, and I'm realizing, wow, from beginning to end, it's all about Christ. He is the center. This is all about Christ. Blessed are they that do that do his commandments. We must repent. What are his commandments? We must do them. Don't believe anybody who tells you the commandments are done away. No. Blessed are they that do his commandments. That they may have right to the tree of life. So eternal life is tied to overcoming and doing these commandments and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. He which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And that needs to be our response, that we love the appearing of God. We want him to come. And when he says he's coming quickly, we say, Yes, Lord, please come quickly. And, you know, when you read this, brethren, the kingdom of God is not for everybody. And, and when this comes to an end, there are going to be dogs. There are going to be sorcerers. There are going to be whoremongers and murderers and liars who love all of that more than they love God. I would call these people monsters. These are the real monsters. And I think we have real monsters in the world, and now we're populating the world with digital monsters. So all kinds of monsters in the world. Christ is not a monster. Everybody's running away from him like he is. 
He only wants to do good. He only wants to bless. He only wants us to turn our heart to him and give ourselves to him. And yet we treat him like we, we chase monsters and run from Christ instead of running from monsters and chasing Christ. We have a window. He hasn't returned yet. He says he's coming like a thief in the night. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We need him to come, and we need him to come now. I, I mean, I, I grieve. When I hear these news reports, how do you, how do you drive a truck into children? How do you aim at children to, to destroy them? How do you do that? And how does this happen every week? The world's gone insane. We need this to stop. But we need Christ to come. But if he comes and he finds us beating up our fellow servants, we will not be in the kingdom. We will perish with the rest of the world. So we have this window, and in this window, brethren, we must repent. And we must teach repentance to our youth. And repentance is an ongoing, lifelong commitment of overcoming. Let's conclude in Second Peter 3. When we see the world unraveling around us, what shall we do? As we have this little window, Peter answers. Second Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He has made a promise thousands of years ago. We saw it in Genesis 12. He's not slack concerning this promise. Even though it's been thousands of years. As some men would count slackness, meaning, you know, he's forgotten or he's not, a, he's not a God of his word. No, instead, we must interpret this time that we have as the long suffering of God. He's long suffering to us word. The reason he hasn't acted on his promise is he's long suffering to us word, toward us, not willing that any should perish. In other words, some are going to perish. The kingdom of, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a great king that forgives his servants, but his servants don't forgive each other. And then he becomes angry with those servants, and they perish. But that's not his will. And again, to the Bible study this morning, where do these wars and fighting come from within us, from, from among us? Because of this lust inside us this nature that we must repent of. And if we don't repent, we will perish, just like everybody else. But he's, he's long-suffering toward us. He's giving us time, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All of us. It's an ongoing process. We have to overcome. He doesn't want any of us to perish. And all of this bickering and fighting that we sometimes see in the church, this is not God's will. And so he delays the return of Christ. He delays the fulfillment of these promises so that we can sort this out. Because when he comes, he's coming as a consuming fire. But the day of the Lord will come 
as a thief in the night. It will come. It's going to come suddenly. And we can kind of see the world kind of unraveling already. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, guaranteed, I'm t- guaranteed, no doubt about it. So seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? There's a standard that we should all have because of this understanding that we have. This, we, we should not be like everybody else. There's an understanding that we have that should elevate our conduct and our godliness. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. We, we should be highly motivated. We should be so focused. Every morning we get up, it's the kingdom of God. But we know what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a king that took account of his servants. And he found one wanting. And said, you owe me this. And that servant pleaded for mercy. And then was cruel and merciless with his brethren. That's what the kingdom of God is like. So as we strive for this kingdom, we need to remember agape. As we were taught in the Bible study. Seeing then all of these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, which we look for, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Oh, God speed this day. All of this filth and cruelty and insanity, it's all going. And the whole world will be filled with righteousness. Wherefore, therefore, beloved, Seeing that you look for such things, this, this is what we're doing. You know, whole world agrees, let's run up and down and look for Pokemon. We're not looking for Pokemon. We're looking for the kingdom of God. Seeing that you look for these things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Brethren, let's repent. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.